0: Welcome to London Lopate at Large. I'm London Lopate. The story almost sounds like a multi-generational novel, a business suspense story that began when, after escaping pogroms in Eastern Europe in 1903, Alan Hassenfeld's grandfather and great-uncle arrived as teenagers in America, broke and alone. But soon they went on from hawking rags on the streets of New York City to build one of the world's largest toy companies. G. Wayne Miller tells the story of the Hassenfeld family and the ups and downs of Hasbro in the latest of his 17 books, Kid Number 1, Alan Hassenfeld and Hasbro, published by Silwater River. Mr. Miller is also a filmmaker, a podcaster, and a staff writer at the Providence Journal, and I'm very pleased to welcome him to our show now. Hi.
1: Hi Leonard, thanks for having me.
0: Is this a sequel to your best-selling book, Toy Wars?
1: Yes, it is a sequel. Toy Wars came out in 1998, mm-hmm. and it was so it's based... It's been a while. It, it's been a while. A lot happened between that book coming out and this book. And, and Toy Wars really focused on about three years in the middle of the 90s when Alan Hassenfeld was chairman and CEO of the company, I was embedded inside Hasbro then. So and the
0: wars were mostly between Hasbro and Mattel. Or?
1: At that time, yes, it, it was a very vicious war too. So that book is worth reading as well.
0: Yeah, the, the toy company, toy industry, comes across as a cutthroat business. <laughs> You'd think that everybody was was nice and thinking in terms of dolls and fruit. Yeah,
1: you know, you th- you think it's Santa's elves and everyone's having a good time and let's see what's going to happen under the Christmas tree, but in fact, it. It is a very competitive business, um, really pretty much on all levels. And when you get to the giants like Mattel and Hasbro, there's intense competition because a much, lot of money's at stake.
0: How much money is spent on toys on a typical year?
1: Uh, It's in the several billions of dollars. I can tell you that uh, Hasbro is just shy of a $5 billion company. Mattel is about the same size. And Lego, which I believe is the largest toy company now, now, is a little bit bigger. So you're talking billions and billions of dollars.
0: International.
1: Oh, absolutely international. A lot of Hasbro's business, and this would be true of Mattel and Lego and other companies as well, is throughout the world. They've got a big market in china south america all throughout europe pretty much everywhere i mean toys are universal and they've taken advantage of that desire to play and be entertained
0: are you friends with alan hassenfeld or were you just simply intrigued by him when you were writing toy wars
1: i am a good friend of alan um when i approached him this would have been in about 1993 I wanted to write a story about the development of a toy, JoJo Joe in particular, and this is kind of a funny story. His number two person, Al Vareccia, who succeeded him as chairman, learned that I had been in touch with Alan. Uh, Alan thought it would be a great idea to have me come inside the company, and so Alan said, Al, what do you think? And Al said, I think it's the worst idea ever to have a reporter inside our company. And Alan said, "Uh, okay, thanks, he's coming in. And that kind of speaks to Alan's free spirit, and, you know, obviously Alan and Al got along really well. So I've known him since then, and in the years after Toy Wars, we stayed in very close touch. Um, I admire greatly his philanthropy. He has done—he's a very wealthy man. He has done a lot for— for children, for families, for refugees, and this is very much in the in the family and and company DNA. And we'll talk a lot about that. Yeah, yeah, I look forward to that. Conversation
0: continues. But how did he come to be the kid number one of your title?
1: Well, he he was born in 1948, four years before Mister Potato Head mm-hmm. came out, and that was the first. It's still in the Hasbro line, Mister Potato Head. It's a great toy. And he um, he likes to joke that he came, you know, a couple of years before Potato Head, but, you know, they must have mixed up the delivery at the hospital. So he he's always had sort of this playful aspect to his personality. But he came into the company when his father, Merrill, was the chairman and the president. And then Merrill died and his brother, Stephen, mm-hmm. who died in 1990, uh, 1989, rather, he died of age. AIDS. Eight. Yeah, he did, uh, very tragically. Uh, he died here in New York City, actually, and, and there's a Hasenfeld Hospital name for him. Um, so Alan had always been the number two in that scenario. Stephen had taken Hasbro into the Fortune 500. He had engineered the, the, the uh, acquisition of Milton Bradley, which brought all kinds of great games and titles into the company. And he was truly a marketing genius and a And Alan had never intended or wanted to run the company. I mean, he'd done a great job as the number two person, but that was the way it was supposed to be.
0: He didn't even want to be the number two person. He he didn't want to enter the family business.
1: Initially, no, he did not. When he came into the family business in the late 1960s when he was still a college student. And he came in uh, on a summer job. Stephen offered him an opportunity to go to Japan where they were sourcing G.I. Joe heads at the time, this would have been 1968, 69, and Alan, who you know, he wanted to be a novelist. He wanted to travel the world. He wanted to write poetry. He he did write poetry. wasn't very good poetry. He never wrote a novel. And so, opportunity as a young kid to go to Japan. Hey, he took it.
0: He also volunteered for several months uh, at an inner city school named for Martin Luther King Jr.
1: He did, and that was in Providence. Um, Back, obviously, here in here in the states, Providence, Rhode Island, mm-hmm. and that was a really eye-opening experience for him. It, it began to to form his uh, empathy and and affection and concern for for marginalized and disadvantaged populations, and, and not simply of color, but also in terms of education and income level uh, and zip code too. I mean, the, if you look at the list of causes, he and Hasbro, but have you know, supported over the years. It's all of that and more.
0: Well, I, I'm curious about how this venture, which began uh, with rag-picking in Manhattan, wound up in Providence.
1: Well, it, it, it's a great story, and I told a little bit of it in Toy Wars, but I spent a lot of time writing, in in the writing of Kid Number 1, doing more research on how that happened.
0: Because Providence isn't a, a, a city that I would normally assume... Uh, Immigrants would be attracted to.
1: Well, actually, it, it was a great city and still is for immigrants. Uh, Rhode Island has has welcomed immigrants from uh, f- starting with Roger Williams, so mm-hmm. you could essentially call an immigrant from uh, the Mass Bay Colony when he was, you know, ordered out of the colony at, at risk of death and and whatever. But to get back to the Hassenfeld brothers, Henry and Hillel. Henry, as as you noted, is Alan's grandfather. I think you noted. And Hillel is his great uncle. They came over here in 1903. They had no money. They spoke no English. They were teenagers. They landed uh, in Manhattan, the Lower East Side. There was a Jewish community there, and so they found some support from from that community. And the, the one skill, and it probably wasn't a very highly developed skill, was peddling. And so they would go up to the garment district in midtown Manhattan, buy the rags, the textile remnants, bring them lower on manhattan and saw them on the street. And I guess they made a little bit of a go of that. I mean they obviously weren't a fortune 500 company at that point. They learned very quickly that the garment industry bought a lot of its cloth, its uncut textiles from mills in Rhode Island, including in Providence, including in Pawtucket, which is the international headquarters of Hasbro now and other places in Rhode Island. So they started they cut out the middleman as it were and they started buying their rags Directly from the factories, which of course had leftovers and remnants, and and then you know the company was born. Well,
0: but they weren't calling it Hasbro then. Obviously, uh, a shortening of Hasenfeld Brothers.
1: No, they. I I spent a fair amount of time also in re researching the origins of Hasbro, and by 1917, in Providence, Rhode Island, they had an office, they had a small workspace, and they were the Hasenfeld Brothers. It was shortened in the next few years to Hasbro, but it, it was not immediately. I mean, they were the Hasenfeld brothers.
0: But then they got out of that business and they started uh, making things. Uh, what pencil cases? Is that? what Yeah, I mean, they,
1: obviously they were entrepreneurial and and creative and smart and obviously very hardworking. And by then, other members of the family had come over. You know, had they had brought them over. They also brought a lot of strangers over to you know to protect them from possible pogrom themselves. Um, they realized, well we, we have this cloth and some of it is high quality, we could use that cloth to line pencil boxes. Now if you go back to 1915, 16, 17, pencil boxes were very popular with school kids and obviously the parents that bought the, the kids for their kids and so the pencil boxes came with, with a pencil, a sharpener, an eraser, a compass, that type of thing used for schools. What they did was lined those boxes and put the same stuff in them, but now they were sort of a deluxe version. Mm.
0: And they and, were buying the pencils from somebody else, but then when uh, correct. that that company started making its own pencil boxes, they started making pencils.
1: Yes, and that's, the family eventually split into two branches. The pencil branch was down south, Pedigree and Empire. They're brands that are still around. I don't think they're in, in the Hasenfeld family and haven't been for years. And the toy side stayed uh, in Rhode Island and started in Providence, as I mentioned. They grew and grew in Providence. Then they moved to Central Falls, another manufacturing city uh, near Providence, and then eventually to Pawtucket. So the pencil boxes then led to them creating doctor and nurse kits. Yeah. Again, you know, getting back to the, the creative and entrepreneurial side of, of, of this family and this company, the uh, they thought, well, you know, we're putting pencils and stuff in, but we don't have to just put that stuff in. We can put other stuff in. And so plastic stethoscopes and, and mm-hmm. plastic thermometers, and they had junior doctor and nurse's kits. And this was would have been in the early 1940s when when they started doing that. And then modeling clay, they also. They did modeling clay, too. They made junior air, air raid warden. I can never <laughs> say that. I've said that a thousand times, and I always my tongue gets twisted on it air raid warden kits. So this would have been bef- on the eve of the Second World War when Nazi you know submarines were prowling the coast and wardens were, were citizens who, who would alert the authorities if they saw a submarine. So they made a toy out of that for kids who wanted to emulate the actual wardens.
0: And things weren't always positive. There was a certain amount of family infighting. That's what led to the, the breaking off of the pencil company.
1: That's exactly correct. Um, Alan Hassenfeld's father, Merrill, we mentioned him, and his brother, Harold, both the sons of Henry Hassenfeld, one of the founders, they had a disagreement. Henry was running the pencil side of the business. Merrill was running the toy side of the business. And this this now fast forwards into the 1960s. The toy side of the business, which Merrill ran, Stephen by then was working for them, and then eventually Alan was – It was a small toy company, and there were some years when they had big hits and made money, and then there were other years when they had complete disasters and lost a lot of money.
0: And what were their first toys?
1: Uh, The first major toy that that the the, the toy side had, Merrill side had, was Mr. Potato Head. There were other toys prior to that, but Mr. Potato Head came out in 1952. For, they bought
0: it from somebody, a guy in Brooklyn.
1: Yeah, yeah, a guy in Brooklyn by the name of George Lerner. He had tried to sell it to Marks and Ideal and all the other big companies of, of the time, much bigger than Hasbro. Those companies are long gone, and they kind of went, well, you know, I, I don't see it. So they took it to this small little toy company in Rhode Island, and Merrill said, hey, that's pretty cool, it was the it, it was a hit right from the start. It was the first toy advertised anywhere on the planet on television and that began a long association of Hasbro with T V and movies and Hollywood and
0: animation and the like and
1: animation and the like. And you know, yeah. if you've seen Transformers or any of these, you know, blockbuster franchises, you see where that all left. Uh,
0: Lead. The original idea was to use real potatoes Mr. Potato Head.
1: <laughs> yes or <it> why <was. laughs> it was you you got plastic parts you know you got a nose you got an ear a couple of years three years four years whatever you got a pipe they eventually dropped that when smoking was was confirmed to be so harmful but you had to stick these parts into an actual vegetable you could put it into a pepper, a sweet potato in fact one of the kids was named sweet potato when they brought in the line or a potato. Two things were bad with that model. One was kids are kids, so they're playing with potatoes, and they get lost on the couch, or you know, and they smell. Uh, there were three things. Two, this was the post-war era, and a lot of parents thought, this is really wasteful, they're like using food as a toy. We can't do that. And the third thing was these plastic parts were sharp. They had to be sharp to be inserted into a vegetable. You could even put it into an orange mm-hmm. or a lemon. And kids started stepping on them and, and getting cut. And so uh, Merrill pretty quickly realized, okay, that's not good.
0: My guest today on Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York is G. Wayne Miller, whose latest book, his 17th, is Kid Number 1, Alan Hassenfeld and Hasbro. It is published by Stillwater. Uh, now, I guess the the... Mr. Potato Head is pretty famous. People will recognize that name no matter what their age. What about GI Joe? How did it become such an uh, a what word do I want to use? Emblematic part of American culture. Was it intended as a doll for boys?
1: It was intended, and that was a very revolutionary idea, as you might imagine. There were lots of army toys that were on the market then. You know the, li- the little plastic soldiers you've seen. Some of them are still made. There were metal tanks and and whatever. Uh, but let me set the stage for that story because we were talking about hits and misses and why the pencil side of the family down in Tennessee, which had steady, even growth and year to year made money but never had to worry about like a big pencil hit and a big pencil failure. It just wasn't the nature of the business. Merrill and the Hasbro toy side of the business brought a toy called Flubber onto the market in 1963. And older members of this audience might remember the Nutty Professor, the not The Nutty Professor, the the Flubber movies. Fred mm-hmm. McMurray starred in them. So Merrill got this idea, we'll make a toy from the magic compound in those movies. And it was called Flubber, and it would bounce, and it would... So he, he bet he literally bet the farm or the company on this product, and he shipped tons and tons of it all across the country with great hype, with radio, with TV.
0: They were very big then, They. They later became a smaller toy.
1: Yes, yes. But but what happened, though, so kids love this toy, parents love this toy, until kids and even some of the parents who were handling it began to break out in rashes. <laughs> and there were, like, hundreds and then thousands of people with rashes. And at first, Merrill like— denied that it was even going on. It's like, no, that can't possibly be true. But then there were lawsuits and then the FDA got involved and he had to concede that, okay, there there is something, an irritant in this product. So they bought it all back. Uh, and then there are all kinds of stories about what happened to it. Did they burn it at sea? Another story said that they dumped it in the ocean off Newport, Rhode Island, but it was rubber, so it rose to the surface. It created a mess. And the last story, and I think all of these are apocryphal. And actually, Alan doesn't – he asked his father what happened to this stuff, and his father wouldn't say ever, so he doesn't know. But the other story was that it was buried under a parking lot outside Hasbro headquarters, and on very hot summer days, it would come oozing up between the payment you know like the La Brea Tar Pits in Los Angeles or something but so they think, started
0: making smaller ones so that were safer but then during the so, Vietnam war didn't they lose their popularity because well of Joe came the, on the
1: market in 64 just quickly oh. the other side of that story so from this horrible loss year of 1963 because of the debacle of of flubber mm-hmm. Merrill took a chance on a 12 inch doll. It was a a doll. He called it an action figure. And that was the first G.I. Joe. And that was a monster hit in 1964.
0: Was it seen as an alternative to Barbie for girls? Because Mattel and and Hasbro (laughs) seemed to uh, have been at a constant war. Uh, Mattel's biggest doll for a long time was Barbie.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. I don't know if it was seen as directly as a competitor because it was clearly, you know, marketed to boys, not girls. But Mattel has always ruled the fashion doll world with Barbie, and Hasbro has always ruled the action figure world, and neither company has been able to come up with the others, like franchise, to to the same degree of success. Although, as we will learn later,
0: they could have been the same
1: company at one point. They could have been the same company at one point.
0: Now, hasn't uh, Hasbro made some of the most popular toys and games over the course of its long history? Uh... Well, uh, thinking
1: of My Little
0: Pony, Transformers. What else?
1: Nerf, of course, is one of their their big franchises, big names. Monopoly, Clue. Well, they bought Monopoly, didn't they? They did. Yeah that that came uh, that came with the the Milton Bradley acquisition. Um, Magic: The Gathering is is a giant hit for them. Still, uh, we mentioned Nerf. We mentioned Transformers. Uh, just so many toys so many toys
0: so uh, they they invented some and and they and others came their way through mergers and acquisitions right and uh, this to some degree this is really the story of of American business over the last 50 60 years well it's more like 70, what, 70 no, years
1: no I mean it it, it really is I mean if, if you look at Google for example which owns YouTube it bought YouTube and and so The genius, if that's the word, of American business, or the flexibility, is that that companies can both create their own products, and can smartly, and sometimes not smartly, acquire other companies to build their franchise and and their brand.
0: You said earlier that Allen developed a sense, uh, an interest in philanthropy uh, and social responsibility during the time when he was resisting working for the company. But um, wasn't there always some kind of a family sensibility that may have been the result of their experiences in Poland?
1: There absolutely was. So getting back to the origin story, the the two teenage brothers come over here, they start to make a go of it, and so now they're young adults, and, and one of the first things they did when they had the means, and it was early on, they began to bring first family members who were facing possible persecution, and even death, over to the safety of the U.S., and then strangers. Um, Again, saving, you know, these were were essentially refugees that the family very much believed in helping and bringing to safety, the safety of of America. Uh, But they also, at the same time, became interested in Jewish causes here in America, but also secular causes. And that goes back to the very early days of Henry and Hillel and a third brother, Herman, who ran the company during the, the, the 20s, 30s, and, and 40s when, when Merrill took over. They've always done that. And they've done it not only with, with resources, meaning money, but also by lending their name to causes uh, and becoming personally involved, something that Alan has taken really to a new level with, with his, his wealth and his reputation. which And we can talk about all those Causes later, will. yeah.
0: Uh, so I get a sense that there was a religious component to the philanthropic work. What is called tikkun olam,
1: yeah, and it's the Jewish tenet of of repairing the world. is is I think the closest translation. Um, it it means that while you're here on this earth, you should do what you can to help. I'm I'm sort of boiling it down, but but to help others to make things better, to improve the condition of, of the world and, and the people and other species that inhabit it. And when Stephen came down with
0: AIDS, was that the period where people were being stigmatized? Or had...
1: Yeah, it, it, it was, uh, absolutely. He, it's unclear when exactly he was diagnosed, but certainly by, uh, by the late 1980s, when he contracted it and where uh, is unknown, but if if you look at the mid to late 1980s, when AIDS first burst on the scene, I, I remember this clearly. Uh, reading headlines, this is before the internet age, and, and when when Rock Hudson, you know, revealed that was really what broke it open in terms of public awareness, but. The disease had been around before that, doctors were identifying it, they didn't know what, what it was. First they thought it was a
0: Haitian male disease, then they then, started then it, calling it the gay
1: disease. The gay bowel syndrome they began to call it. And so it, it was a time of, of misunderstanding, a, a time of fear. I mean this I guess probably a parallel with the coronavirus today.
0: Well, well today uh, it still uh, is a, a problem mostly through HIV drug use.
1: Yes, but, but there are medications that can effectively control it and you can live you can live essentially a normal quote unquote healthy life with this. But that's today. Back then in the eighties, none of that was possible. And there was a huge stigma attached to even the possibility that you might have that. Now so bear in mind Stephen is running a Fortune five hundred company. He's a Wall Street the company's a Wall Street favorite. The stock is trading at really Good prices and making a lot of people a lot of money. And his fear was, and I never interviewed him, but I know this from from people who worked for him um, and and worked under him and and with him and from his brother, was that by announcing that he had AIDS, it could damage the company in terms of the company's prospects, which in turn would you know have hurt potentially a lot of employees, sh- shareholders, and whatnot. Uh, and there may well have been other factors. He, he never told his own mother that he had AIDS. Uh, and, and so he, he died quietly in 1989. He was at the last annual meeting of the company was that spring in 1989. And he looked frail and fragile, and there were all kinds of rumors about what he might have, and, but the company never confirmed it.
0: Had Allen already taken over? Uh, no, he didn't
1: take him. over until after Stephen died. And you was know Was he reluctant? Because he had been reluctant earlier, or had he already made He he was reluctant. Um and and just as an aside, Toy Wars was the first time in print that it was acknowledged what he what Stephen had really died of mm-hmm. and AIDS and um I'm sorry, what was the question I was thinking no, I was, th- I was oh,
0: thinking about Alan taking over at that point. Uh, he was he reluctant. He was kind of forced to take over because he was the next in line.
1: Well, he didn't have to take over. And, and there's a scene in Toy Wars and, and also in Kid Number One where Stephen dies in this city. His body is sent to Providence, Rhode Island, where his service will be in a synagogue on the east side of Providence where the Hassenfelds lived. And he was lying in his casket the night before. Um, And Alan spent the night with his brother, the only person in that room, a very poignant, poignant scene. And he asked his brother, what should I do? Should I take over? What do you want me to do? And Stephen somehow conveyed to him, or Alan believes that he conveyed to him, the answer, yes, you should. And until that point, Alan wasn't clear what he would do. I mean, obviously, losing his brother was it was a tragedy. There was a degree of shock and, and whatnot. There was a degree of self doubt. Can I run this company? You know, the the kid brother, not the kid brother, the older brother is the the marketing genius. I've been number two. I've given myself this nickname, kid number one, because I've got a more playful side to me. Um, and there were there were stockholders and even members of his own board who were really it was like, are you kidding me? You you know. Alan's a great guy, and he's been a good number, too, but he can't run this company. I mean, look at the way he dresses. Penny loafers, no socks. He's got a scarf on all the time. He wears these rubber bands. What's that all about? And what was that all about? He, His first love, it was a, a girlfriend he had when he was a teenager, and spent, um, he spent a winter. It was a, a summer in Australia, in in Australia, helping disadvantaged kids, and his girlfriend... Went with him And it was another one of those learning experiences For him such as the one we talked about before She was in a terrible car accident And was in a coma And he was at her bedside As she lingered in that coma And she died And he promised her And this goes back many, many years That as a token of remembrance He would wear a rubber band For the rest of his life And he still does He wears like three or four I just saw him this morning
0: didn't uh, Alan and Stephen fund a children's hospital in Rhode Island? Uh, what, was, what led to that?
1: that? Was, it, uh,
0: is their interest in children because they, the, the children are their main market,
1: or is it what, what Alan, something else? The way Alan would answer that question, and it's the answer to the question, is that they have made their fortune – their their good outcome, their their stature in life, everything they have built and, and the employees at Hasbro owe it all to children because they are making products for children. So their first and Alan's first and foremost allegiance in terms to of, of philanthropy is to children, to children and families. So the origin, and, and we can talk more about the many ways that that is expressed, but Medically, he has and his family have been really keen on medical causes. And long story short, Stephen was involved in the early conceptualization of of the Hasbro Children's Hospital, but Alan brought it to fruition with Alvarecki, his number two, and they led the movement, gave a lot of their own money, and built what is a world-class children's hospital in Providence.
0: Because there had been no decent hospital. Uh, for children in Rhode Island. No,
1: there, w- there was a wing in it, it, there was a wing in Rhode Island Hospital, which is you know the largest hospital in the in the state, level one trauma center. But it was literally a wing, and, and it was small, and there were like two or three kids to a room, and, and there was no privacy, and it was dirty and dingy, and it was not by any means a first class pediatric institution. And that's what they wanted to replace and did. Just celebrated 25 years. It's a great hospital.
0: You're listening to Leonard Lopez at large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM. We're listener sponsored, and we have uh, only you to help us keep going.
2: G.I. Joe, G.I. Joe, fighting now a new world of fun with G.I. Joe Air Force. Is your G.I. Joe ready for duty aboard a carrier? Does he have the new deck commander set with jumpsuit, signal paddle, and helmet with earphone? Is he equipped with a new firefighter set, special heat suit, hood, accessory belt, and fire extinguisher? Is he ready to go into space with a new G.I. Joe astronaut capsule and space suit, silver uniform, space helmet, communications cord? The realistic capsule has simulated retro rockets. Sliding canopy, control panel two. And the capsule floats so recoveries can be made. There's even a phonograph record of an actual flight. G.I. Joe is the greatest. Nothing else is
0: G.I. Joe.
1: Boy, oh boy, it's a Hasbro toy.
0: And we're talking about Hasbro with G. Wayne Miller. Uh, His latest book is called. Kid number one, Alan Hasenfeld and Hasbro. We'll get back to that story because there's a lot of really interesting stuff, mostly uh, philanthropic things that uh, the uh, Hasenfelds did over the years. But um, uh, right now we're thinking about money in another way. (laughs) I'm joined now by Jesse Lent, my executive
2: producer. And Jesse, uh, we need money. Hello, Leonard. Hello, everyone. This is true. Uh, As uh, regular listeners to the program will certainly know, we are in our fun drive here at WBAI in our winter fun drive. However, we are in the final week now. We are coming up on the end of this drive. And I have a very exciting uh, thing to add, which is that our listener, Ken Coglin. Uh, has made a, a similar offer, extended his uh, his pledge. we We still have a few hundred dollars of the matching funds left that Ken had offered. So if you are planning to make a contribution and help keep Leonard Lopez at large coming to you, we WBAI coming to you and all of the other great programming on this network, right, Leonard, coming to you. Uh, every day 24 hours a day we need you to go to our website give to wbai.org that's give then the number two wbai.org or you can also call our call center at 516-620-3602 thanks to the generosity of regular listener to the show longtime listener ken Coglin. Um, the next several hundred dollars—I don't have the exact number in front of me—but uh, but the next few hundred dollars of of listener pledges will be matched. So your dollars will go twice as far. So why not step your up? Your Fifty dollars will become hundred dollars for us. $100 your hundred dollars become becomes two hundred, and so on and so forth. And so we really hope that some listeners will take advantage of this um, and. and take advantage of this great deal.
0: And we should point out that this is the way we survive, because we don't take any money from foundations, we don't take grants, or we don't run commercials. A lot of public radio and television these days uh, run what I would call commercials, even though they would call them, what, funding credits or something like that. Uh, but you know what they really are. We rely 100% on the support of our listeners. Uh, If you don't call, we don't get the money. So we hope that you will uh, think of that. If if you're uh, even a a casual listener to WBAI, you know how invaluable it has been over the course of its 60-year history. We've been here 60 years as a a, a listener-sponsored station um, this is our 60th anniversary so um, we have had our ups and our downs and we're hoping to to bounce back right now with your support call us at 65166203602 or go to give to wbai.org that's given then the number 2 wbai.org and we hope that you will give in the name of Leonard Lopez at large but whether you want to give in the name of all of the shows here on WBAI,
2: the important thing is that we
0: have that show of support.
2: It is. However, <laughs> if you're a regular listener of this show, we would appreciate if you would put that down so that management can see that our listeners are among the most activated at the station, which is absolutely true. Our listeners are incredible. Uh, We've seen some people really stepping up, making donations of all different kinds. People like uh, Margaret Hanlon of Rahway, New York. Margaret, thank you so much for your contribution. And really, Margaret is just one of a very... uh, well, I don't know if we should say exclusive, but I would say a, a very important and special group of people out there that we call our regular listeners to the show. Now, uh, as I've said multiple times on the air before, you know, uh, I came uh, relatively late to the Leonard Lopez at large saga. I was a listener of the show for 10, 15 years before uh, before I ever became Leonard's producer. And I will say that after I did start working with Leonard, one thing that has continued to impress me uh, is the devotion of our regular listeners. Uh, that the activation. Oh, I thought you were going to compliment me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, no. Leonard, no, no. I, if we there love are, our listeners. If there are no listeners, right. as I'm sure you would admit, we get there a lot is of great no feedback. Leonard Bloomer. Uh, this show. Lives and dies on our our wonderful audience, and of course, it is an honor uh, to watch this man in action five days a week, as well, uh, and a constant learning process. But I think it really is a a a real uh, testament to our audience the kind of informed questions, as Leonard says that we that just said that we get on a regular basis the kind of intelligent show suggestions, which we're always looking for, and we always do our best. Uh, uh, to, to pursue, if, if it's something we can find an hour in. And, you know, all of this is really dependent on you if you want to join, if maybe you're just finding this sh- this show now. But if you want to step up and become part of this revered group of regular Leonard Lopate at large listeners, we need you to go to the phone right now and call 516-620-3602 or go to the website give to WBAI.org. That's give then the number to WBAI.org. And
0: right now can be any time because a lot of people listen to us on podcasts. Uh, We are available through many different sources of with podcasts so if you are listening to this show uh in the afternoon the evening tomorrow whatever uh we still would love for you to give us that call at 516-620-3602 or go to give to
2: wbai.org and of course those generous matching funds from ken Coglin matching any donation we get uh, we will. Uh, th- those will will go after uh, the show ends today, assuming that we we haven't already used up all that money. So please make that contribution right now, so that you can get twice as much bang for your buck. You'll become a voting member of the station and get all of the the swag that our regular listeners and and our should I say our members get. Um, So please make that contribution. Leonard, I want to let you get back to this fascinating conversation. But just in case anyone was on the fence and they didn't have a pen, this is the last time we're going to give it out this hour. Uh, uh, The the number is 516-620-3602 or go to give to WBAI.org. Please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large and from all of us at the show and all of us at WBAI. Thank you so much for your support. And we are back with our guest, Gene Wayne Miller,
0: whose latest book is Kid Number One, Alan Hassenfeld and Hasbro. And uh, I mentioned earlier that you do other things. You are also a broadcaster, but you're a filmmaker. And the Hasbro story uh, is intertwined with film, including some pretty famous filmmakers.
1: Starting with, of course, Steven Spielberg, Who uh, and we recount the scene in both Kid Number One and in Star Wars uh, in the 1990s came to Rhode Island to sign an agreement to create uh, through DreamWorks his company and eventually Amblin products that would be themed with themes, kids themes that both Spielberg and Allen at that time and his crew came up with. Um, He later he was one of the executive producers on. I believe, the first Transformers major movie. There, that's become a blockbuster series. Uh, and there are other filmmakers, too, who have been involved with, with Hasbro. But, you know, let's take Transformers. That began in, in the 1980s, came into the Hasbro fold. Steven did something with it. Alan did something with it. But under the present CEO, Brian Goldner, who serves as executive producer on this franchise. They have created this blockbuster, blockbuster franchise, you know, both domestically and globally. And there have been several films. They do not produce Toy Story, but their characters, uh, including Mr. Potato Head, are featured in the Toy Story franchise, including Toy Story 4, which recently came out and uh, won an Academy Award recently. But
0: didn't Pixar want royalties from Hasbro because of- <laughs>
1: They did, and when that came to the attention of Put Hazard and limp. When, when that came to the attention of Alan, it's like, "Hello, this is our toy. You, you're welcome to use it, but uh, no, we're not going to pay you to use our toy. If anything, you would pay us to use our toy." And that didn't happen. But um, he gave them the permission to use uh, Mr. Potato Head, and that's a great franchise, by the way, for, for kids and, and grown up kids as well.
0: And then there's also SpongeBob, Bob, SpongeBob. SpongeBob. SpongeBob.
1: Bob. Bob. Whatever, yes. Whatever, is. Sp- <laughs> SpongeBob. SpongeBob, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> that has not really been a big one in their line. Uh, it, you know, it really? has. Because everybody uh, knows about it. Yeah, but they haven't had a big piece of that action. Star Wars, they have a license for Star Wars. That's been a huge part. But didn't people object to uh, SpongeBob's purple bag? No, that was a different toy, oh. and that uh, I'm blocking on the name of that toy. Uh, Tinky Winky was was the name of that toy. It was a British toy line, and Jerry Falwell <laughs> saw that as evidence of a gay conspiracy in the oh toy God. world, uh, and to which Alan basically said, "Really? Are you kidding me, Jerry? You know." But he was he was on the Today Show. Jerry Falwell was claiming it was Teletubbies. That was the line. And, but Tinky Winky was the character with with the pink handbag. And it was, you know, it's it's crazy what people glom onto and see in, in products and in life. And we could go down the whole conspiracy rabbit hole, but that's not what we're talking about no, didn't today.
0: Uh, Didn't Spielberg weigh in when Mattel attempted to take over Hasbro?
1: He did. He wrote, yes. And, and it was a hostile takeover attempt. This was on Allen's watch. And uh, John Ammerman, who was the chairman and CEO at, of Mattel at the time, had had a conversation with Alan a few months prior to this hostile takeover attempt. You know, maybe someday we ought to get our companies together. You know, Mattel and Hasbro, how mighty that would be, what a giant company, and, and so forth and so on. Alan, you know, said, well, you know, we'll give it some consideration. But it wasn't anything he really wanted to do. The cultures didn't fit. You had the Western California, the Western and California Mattel Company. You had an East Coast toy company that had a very different culture in terms of family and and whatnot. Um, and so Ammerman surprised Alan Hasenfeld one morning when he came back from winter vacation in Thailand with a hostile takeover fax. This was back in the days of the fax. And Allen fought that uh, and objected to that, and he enlisted, getting back to Spielberg, the support of Spielberg, who wrote a very public letter saying – I'm paraphrasing here now, but saying, come on, you've got to be serious here. We support Hasbro one hundred percent. What are you doing, Mattel? Mm-hmm. And it was it was influential in in, in the tide actually turning, and, and eventually. And this is a very soul searching time for Alan.
0: But it's a nice, it's nice to have Steven Spielberg on your side. It but is,
1: but you know, he, the, uh, Alan's relationship with his mother is, is one of the sub themes of the book, and it's been it was a curious and interesting relationship, sort of a love and not hate, but a love and like a you kidding me, mom type relationship. But when when Sylvia Hasenfeld who was Alan's mother? Heard about the money that Mattel was going to offer Hasbro for this takeover attempt. It was a lot of money, and Alan said, "We're fighting this. We're not doing it." Her quote to him was, "Quote: Did I take the wrong baby home from the hospital?" <laughs> and, and just one little personal note, because we're not here to talk about you know technique or or craft, but but I will on this one thing. As I mentioned earlier. Toy Wars was the first time publicly in print anywhere that it was confirmed that Stephen had died of AIDS. Mm-hmm. Now, I had interviewed Sylvia prior to the book coming out on a lot of things. She gave me a lot of good background information, some of which I saved and used in kid number one. When that book came out, and I ran, I ran this passage by Alan. Just, I, Alan, I want you to be sure you're okay with it, and he was. He said it's time finally that the truth comes out. His mother never spoke to me again. Mm. But I had, the and it wasn't a laugh, but I had the last laugh. I wrote her obituary, but it wasn't a laugh. (laughs) At the Providence? (laughs) At the Providence Journal, where I'm still on the staff. I mean, she was a great philanthropist in her own right, but the Stephen and AIDS thing was not something she wanted to ever get into. In
0: 1999, Hasbro had terrific success with the Furby and Pokemon franchises, but didn't those relationships almost destroy the company just a year later?
1: Yeah, uh, Alan bet a lot of money on on those products, and many toys. And this is less true now than it was then, because you know a company like Mattel with Barbie, a company like Hasbro with Transformers and Nerf. You know the core brands. They know how to keep them alive, refresh them. You don't rely as much on sort of the one one hit wonder type thing. But at that time. The, the business was a little bit different, and so you could bet a lot of money on a toy, and if it didn't pop immediately or the next year, you were in trouble. And that's what happened to Alan with both of those products and factored into his decision eventually to hand over the reins of the company to Al Varecchia, who had been his number two as we talked about.
0: You mentioned that uh, Hasbro also has Monopoly. They purchased it. Uh, Donald Trump came up with a, a competitive game. What happened it, to that?
1: It was Donald Trump's <laughs> It was Donald Trump's monopoly game and he said that he would donate, you know, a large I've forgotten the numbers. It's it's in kid number one, but he would donate a a, a large percent of the proceeds to charity and and so forth. Um the game was not really a big hit. It was actually, and there were there were a couple of versions of it. And we know what happens when he promises to give money to charity. And well, the Washington Post actually looked into this, and that money that was supposedly promised to charity never went to any charity that the Post could figure out. And and one of the later versions of the game, this again goes back many years, uh, was played by a number of people. I think including at Rolling Stone, it might have been Mother Jones, and they completely panned the game it was not what they thought would be a great game
0: uh getting back to the charities alan chaired the rhode island governor's advisory council of refugee resettlement Uh, donald trump reminds me of that yes Um, what types of projects did they undertake
1: they were involved in resettling people from uh, southeast asia in the United States, primarily in Rhode Island, uh, there were there were survivors of the Cambodian genocide, in particular.
0: And he made a semi-secret mission to refugee camps in Thailand.
1: Yeah, and we recount that story in in Kid Number One, and it was sort of a it was a cloak and dagger type mission. Uh, he did it at great risk, and, and this was shortly after, a great personal risk to himself. This was shortly after he took over Hasbro in in the wake of of his brother's death. And it was something he shouldn't have done. He didn't tell anyone on his board or even his family why he was going over to Southeast Asia, what specifically he was going to do. But, it, you know, it speaks to Allen's, it speaks to his personality and, and spirit and conviction. He thought this was important, something that his personal name could help expedite, could bring more people to to the safety of America, much as his own family had brought many people in, in his grandfather and great uncle had survived um, and he succeeded in getting some people back um, he never took another trip like that again because
0: but they did bring uh, people from Puerto Rico uh, after the, the, the yes
1: uh, the more earthquake. recently he charted two uh, two flights with medical supplies and and equipment and and brought a, a lot of uh, children who were Living, living with diabetes and other diseases that needed advanced medical care that could, they could not get in the wake of the hurricane. He did that with uh, Natalie DeNegra, who is somebody he's partnered with to uh, do films and other charitable works. She's based in Miami, too.
0: It is kind of shocking uh, in a positive way to think of all of the positive things that uh, this toy company has been engaged in. Uh, Alan said, to be a company going forward in the 21st century, you need to be well-run and socially responsible. Um, is Hasbro a certified B corporation? Because uh, uh, com ranked it as one of the world's most ethical companies.
1: Yeah, and they, the Corporate Responsibility Magazine has also rated them very, very highly. and And that's for what they provide, not only their philanthropy in terms of Of gifts in terms of toys for for children and other things, but also what they do with their own employees. They give their own employees four days off, uh, four, four hours off per month to do charitable work. So if, you know, in a year you can get four times 12, 48 hours of time off to do community work. They have a global day of joy, which one of which I recount there.
0: And according to the company's website, it has achieved 99% renewable energy use throughout its facilities. It audits 100% of its third-party vendors for social co- compliance each year uh, and seeks ethical sourcing. Uh, also have created children's hospitals, uh, uh, ha- facilities for autistic children, Kind of unbelievable. Well, yeah. Let, well, let, is this
1: all secret? I no, mean, no. This is this, this is well known. I mean, here in New York, we were starting to talk about Stephen Hasenfeld. In the wake of his death, uh, the family set up the Stephen D. Hasenfeld Children's Center for Cancer and Blood Disorders, and that's what at NYU Langone. That was the first great medical philanthropy here in the city. They had done other things here as well, but in terms of medicine and healing. That was their first one. And more recently, the family, Sylvia was still alive. This was in her last years. The family donated $50 million to open the Hassenfeld Children's Hospital again at NYU Langone. And that's both of these are world-class facilities made possible by the the generosity of, of, of the Hasenfeld family.
0: And there's also the Hasenfeld Family Innovation Center at Brandeis University. Yes,
1: at Brandeis, there's a Leadership Center at Bryant University in Rhode Island. There's a program at the Harvard School of, of Public Affairs, and and the, literally the list the list is dozens of pages of 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 causes and and things that. Alan and his family foundation yeah. support. It's really quite incredible. We
0: only have a minute left, but uh, has Alan remained uh, uh, involved in political and social issues now that he's left the
1: company? Oh yeah, very much so. Uh, both national and, and local, meaning local Rhode Island issues as well. And he remained. You know, he's still on the board. Uh, he he's a significant stockholder in the company, as you might imagine. Uh, so he has—he certainly has some input in, in how the company is run. He's not running it, and he, he understands that. Um, he's still a very viable force, both in the company and politically.
0: And I should mention that you're, uh, as I said earlier, you're a filmmaker. You made a film called On the Lake, Life and Love in the Distant Place, which tells the story of the tuberculosis epidemic in America in the 1900s
1: and then globally. Um,
0: so you're a kindred spirit.
1: Yes, and I, I, wanted, I just want to mention one more thing I'll do very quickly. I co-host and co-produce a national PBS show called Story in the Public Square. Storytelling and public policy, it's in this market, it's everywhere in the country, and it's Sirius XM radio too. So I guess I am kind of a kindred spirit with, with Alan. G. Wayne Miller, his
0: latest book, Kid Number 1, Alan Hassenfeld and Hasbro, published by Stillwater
1: River. It's been a great pleasure. Leonard, thanks so much. Enjoyed coming here. And that brings us to the end of today's
0: show. Special thanks to Susie Stoltz for producing this segment. If you're new to our program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast. And don't forget to check out uh, Leonard Lopate at large on Facebook and Twitter and our website, letathlopatedlarge.com, where you can find links to all of our past shows and leave your comments. We're preempted tomorrow for special WBAI Fund Drive programming, but we hope you'll join us on Wednesday when Linda Shelton and Ronald K. Brown of the Joyce Theater Foundation will discuss the 35-year anniversary of their production, Evidence. We'll see you then. And a reminder that we are in the final week of wbai's winter pledge drive we hope that you'll support the show and you can do that right now by going to give to wbai.org that's give and the number two wbai.org or by calling 516-620-3602 and anyone who makes a contribution of any amount will get that amount matched by uh, one of our favorite listeners ken Coglin. so we um We appreciate the support of people like Ken, but we also appreciate the support of uh, all of you who call in for any amount. And if you want to be a BAI buddy, we would love for you to do that as well. We'll see you on Wednesday.